Okay, why don't we stand and read Psalm 34? We're just going to read from verses 1 to 6. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked at him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, today, we are going to be speaking about how to overcome fear. How to overcome fear. I actually wasn't planning on speaking about this this week. I was actually planning on starting a new sermon series. But after hearing many of your hearts last week in last week's service, as well in, as continuing conversations that happened throughout the week, I realized that many of you are actually going through fear. You're facing situations that are tough and you're experiencing anxiety and worry. And so instead of sort of charging ahead in a sermon series that I wanted us to do, I thought, why don't meet you at where you're at? And I'm sure if a few individuals express that fear and anxiety that probably a lot of us are also experiencing that and never actually spoke out. And we all have as well our own coping mechanisms, right? We all have our own strategies for dealing with worry and anxiety and, and things like that. And we try to gain victory of, over the, this fear in our different ways. But I thought we could do this together this morning, and that is to find out God's perspective on how to approach fear and how to overcome it. And who better to learn from than King David? <laughs> King David, a man very accustomed to fearful situations. But before we dive into the story here of David, I want to first recognize with you all that fear is a powerful and real emotion that can dominate every part of us. It can easily overtake our well-being. It can even act as a catalyst to other emotions we experience, such as anxiety, panic, and anger. And it's an emotion that has no limits and no bounds and no mercy. It affects unbelievers and believers alike. God's people are not less likely to face fearful situations just because we're followers of him. That's very clear when you read the scriptures. The Bible's full of stories of godly men and women who had to face uh, very fearful situations in their lives. And that's why I like the Bible. I think it's a cool uh, book because it doesn't try to make life about uh, this whole fairy tale story full of rainbows and sort of Hollywood endings. It speaks to the raw realities of human experience. And so again, because we have our own coping mechanisms, this is why we need to gain God's perspective, since we are not going to escape it as followers of Jesus. So what are we to do, and how does God want us to respond? Well, in Psalm 34, you probably below your title have a little inscription those of you who have your Bibles open, do you have an inscription below Psalm 34, but with two sentences long? Anyone have that? Someone read theirs out. A Psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of the Yeah. 
Yeah, a Psalm of David who pretended to be as insane in front of Abimelech who sent him away. Now these words are really helpful in this inscription because as they tell us the time and place and the events surrounding when David composed Psalm 34. Psalm 34 was written in response to the events that happened in front of Abimelech, this king, when he faked insanity. Now, if you want to read about those events, they're in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. But let me give you the background to this story so you know how David even got here in the first place. And then we'll get to that story and then to Psalm 34. <laughs> so we've got a lot of catching up to do here. But work with me. It'll be worth it. This, the, the really, um, this story starts at about 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. It's a time in Israel when King Saul is the first king in their history. And Saul was a, an important man in the beginning because he started off as someone obedient to God. And he was one who walked with the Lord in many ways. But as time went on, Saul began to seek his own ways and departed from God in obeying him. And so we started to sin against the Lord. And the result was that God said to Saul, through the voice of a prophet, one of God's spokespeople, that his kingdom was going to be removed from him and given to someone else for his disobedience. Now, this man Saul didn't know at the time was going to be King David, who at this time in his life was just a shepherd. He was a, sh a young man, a shepherd. But the, the event that really springboarded David's rise to replace Saul as king happened in a famous battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And you can read this about this in 1 Samuel 17. But it was like a Braveheart scene or a, or a Lord of the Rings scene. The Philistines had come to make war against Israel and they came to one mountain and there was a valley in between. Israelites in response gathered on the other side of the mountain to, with their army to respond. But there was a problem. This is a very unique war. The Philistines happened to champion a man by the name of Goliath, who was undefeated in battle and was a terrifying man. He was of great size and strength, and he left Israelites absolutely crippled in his presence. And to make matters worse, every day, Goliath would come down from the mountain into the valley and taunt Israel and basically said, do any of you have the courage to fight me? And no one would go forward. And then he'd even taunt God and mock God's name and say, you have a worthless God, this worthless God of Israel. You have no power. He has no power. And so not even Saul would go up to go against this Goliath. And Saul was reported to be head and shoulders above everyone else in height. So he was a big man himself. But he, even the king of Israel wouldn't go. And it left Israel paralyzed in fear. 1 Samuel 17, 11, quote, unquote, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They were fearful. This continued for 40 days where Goliath would challenge Israel and no one would move until a young man by the name of David showed up to del deliver food to the army on the front lines. And he heard Goliath taunting the Israelites and said, I'll go to battle. And he only had two things. He had two weapons. And when I say only, they weren't, <laughs> they weren't just only two weapons. They were, they were the absolute critical weapons. Number one was a slingshot. And number two was a name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. And so he goes to battle, kills Goliath. 
takes Goliath's swords, cuts off his head, and leads Israel to victory. Now, at first, Saul is grateful to David. Super grateful. I mean, they've been taunted for 40 days. No one go up to fight. They're basically like uh, sitting ducks in their presence, and now they're victors over their enemy nation. But over time, this jealousy, or sorry, this gratefulness turned into jealousy as David's fame rose within the nation. The women of the land wrote a song about David. They wrote a song. It was number one on iTunes in Israel. And um, this, is the, this is a very telling scene. You've got to read this with me. This is a scene in Israel. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, and they danced and sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, tens of thousands. Listen to the words. The women came out to see King Saul as the king, right, of Israel to celebrate the nation's victory, and they're not singing about him. <laughs> they're singing about David. He's a slayer of thousands, tens of thousands. Saul, he only killed thousands. And so Saul says here, was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. And he said, they've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get out of the kingdom or get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He kept a close eye on David. And a close eye he did. From that day on, Saul sought on various occasions to take David's life, and he forced David to be on the run. He was forced to live as a fugitive in the land of Israel. Now, David Jeremiah once said this, and I never forgot this. He once said, fatigue can make a coward of us all. Fatigue can make a coward of us all. Well, this became true of David. After being constantly on the run and escaping, trying to escape Saul's grasp, looking over his shoulder, sleeping with one eye open, he started to get worn down. And this once unshakable man of faith, this giant killer, who totally trusted in the Lord more than anyone in the nation of Israel, he was the most faithful man in all of Israel, began to waver in the midst of fear and the fatigue of Saul's pursuit. Now, what, this, what happened, church, is this. It resulted in David starting to think irrationally. It started in David start to make very poor decisions. And the event led him to the inscription in Psalm 34 when he faked insanity before Abimelech. Now, let me explain this story to you because this is a good one too. This is almost hard to believe when, I ta- when we just talked about David and how faithful he was to God. But listen to David's irrational thinking and illogical behavior based on the, on the fears and the worries and the fatigue he's feeling. David thinks that the best way to escape is to cross the border of Israel and to go into the enemy nation of the Philistines. <laughs> the nation he just defeated years earlier with uh, Goliath. But it gets better, church. On the way to Philistines, guess which city he decides to enter into? Gath. Gath. I didn't mention this earlier in Goliath's story, but in 1 Samuel, 
I think it's chapter 17 and verse 4, Goliath was from the city of Gath. In chapter 21 and verse 10 of this story, guess which city he goes into? Gath, Goliath's hometown. But the details get even more bizarre. One thing I haven't told you yet, on the way to Philistine territory, David and his men get hungry. They're starving. And they stop off in a city where there's a, there's a priest by the name of Abimelech or Ahimelech. He lives there, and he goes to acquire food from the priest. So David then tells a lie. This faithful man of God starts telling lies to try to acquisition food. He was too afraid to ask Abimelech, or Ahimelech for the food outright, probably because he thought if he found out that Saul was after him, he would have become an enemy of David himself. But then he says this, David says this, he inquires if Ahimelech has any weapons and storage he can take on his journey to Philistia. And chapter 21, verse 9 is the absolute bomb. <laughs> Read this with me. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. The priest knew who David was. He says, the sword of Goliath is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. <laughs> David's response, there's none like it. Give it to me. There's none like it. Give it to me. This is almost too hard to make up, church. Here's David, the most faithful man in all of Israel, who killed Goliath, thinking it's a good idea to go into Goliath's home territory with a sword on his waist and try to seek refuge in a Philistine enemy territory. But you know what? An important truth emerges for us all. Fear is such a powerful emotion that if not handled properly and not approached God's way, can overcome even the most faithful followers of God. If any of you have any spirit of pride in here and think, I'm untouchable in the area of fear, let me ask you this question. Would you be the one to go up against Goliath uh, 3,000 years ago? If you think you're untouchable, would you have gone up against Goliath? If it can touch David, it can touch you, and it can touch me. And if you told David months earlier, guess what you're going to be doing in a few months from now or a few years from now in terms of trying to protect yourself, he would have laughed, probably laughed his face off at you thinking, that's ludicrous. I'd never do that. It's important, church, because maybe some of us in here have not gone as far as David. But maybe over the last year and a half, we've had some pretty irrational thoughts Maybe we've some, done some things that have been sort of uh, maybe off of God's ways. But again, thankfully, the story doesn't end here. David writes Psalm 34 in response to this entire background. And I want to just make a quote from a commentator that I read. Here's what he says. The triumph and joy of this song is so clear that it is easy to forget the life context of the psalm. It is for people who find themselves at the absolute low point in life, which is where David was, or find themselves between a rock, which is in the case of King Saul, and a hard place, which is the King Akish, which is Abimelech, another name for him. 
It is for you when everything seems against you. So what do we do, church? What do we do? Number one, we have to have in our response to fear the courage to offer the Lord our praise. We have to have the courage to offer the Lord our praise. Look at verses one through three. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Notice five times in three verses, David speaks about offering praise to God in the midst of his fears. If you like to circle and underline, listen to this. I will bless, I will praise, I will boast, I will magnify, I will exalt. You get the picture. I don't know about you, but this is totally counterintuitive to my personality. My typical response in the midst of fears and worries and anxieties is not to praise God. That's not to praise the Lord. What I do is I tend to work the problem. I try to work it out on my own rationale. I can even debate myself silly. <laughs> the farthest thing from my mind is, not, is praising God. The farthest thing often is, is not praising him. But here we are learned to, about God's solution. We're here not to discuss our own methods in dealing with fear. We're here to learn God's. From David's point of view, he turned his worry into an opportunity for worship. He turned his anxiety into an opportunity for admiration. And he turned his panic into an opportunity for praise. But notice how he chose to worship in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Two things stand out. First, the frequency of his praise for God. He says, I will do this at all times. I will do this continually. This was David's MO. If he had a business card, it'd be praiser of God. Praiser of God. That's, that's what you'd see. Not, I killed Goliath. Praiser of God. That's his business card. And this is clear in the Psalms church. He didn't just do this in times of fear. He did this in times of prosperity and goodness too. He wrote half the Psalms in the Psalms. <laughs> but they're full of praise for God. Whether he was in distress and worry or whether he was in prosperity and doing well. It, his emotions were never changed. His emotions actually didn't dictate how he approached the Lord in this way. And my confession is probably much like yours. Most likely, we only praise the Lord when things are going well. And God gets shut out when things are bad. In fact, we go the opposite. God, you must have abandoned me. God, you must not love me because life is so difficult. If anyone could have claimed that, David did, and he didn't do that. This is important, church, because don't let the circumstances dictate whether you praise the Lord or not. Your feelings will never line up. Your feelings will never line up with wanting to do this. But who said feelings had anything to do with praise? This reminds me of Paul in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, 16. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
So many people spend so much time going, what's God's will for my life? Do I go to this university? Do I go to that? Do I date this girl? Do I get married to this man? Do I take this job? Listen, his will is to give thanks in all things. <laughs> Not that he doesn't care about those other things and can't provide answers, but this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You give thanks in all circumstances and you rejoice. Second thing I want you to notice, though, was how he expressed his praise. He says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be, be in my mouth. In his mouth. Now, David didn't keep his praise close to his heart and internalize. He wasn't internalizing, just processing these things. He verbalized them. He verbalized them. They were out loud. And we know they're out loud because of what happens here. He says, the humble will hear it and rejoice and let us exalt his name together. So his intention is that others will hear it. This is super important. His, his worship of God was contagious. He wanted others to join him in praise. I think this is why meeting together here is so important. As we sing together and praising God, as we go into dialogue and we praise the Lord, and we enter into prayer and praise the Lord, these are, good, these are awesome things because often for me, I might be sort of stuck in my mind of how to think of God and how to praise him, but you might pray or say something in a way that reminds me of a category that I can then think, oh yeah, God is that way. God does do those things. That is who he is. And I can respond accordingly. Again, this is another reason why the community of believers is so important. It helps us in praising the Lord and then having others join us in it. The second lesson I want you to take away, though, besides having the courage to, to praise in times of worry and fear, is that we have to have the courage to bring our fears before the Lord in prayer. We have to be, have courage, be courageous enough to bring our fears before the Lord in prayer. That's verse 4 and verse 6. Listen to this. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him. He sought and he cried. He sought and he cried. The fact that David had the courage to bring his fears and failures before the Lord in prayer is significant. Knowing the background of a story... Right, church? See, in David's situation, there were some fears that resulted of being a victim. There were some fears because he was a victim. He was, a result, he was victimized by Saul and out of jealousy. But in Psalm 34, when it was written, it was self-induced. <laughs> it was self-induced. He made some pretty crazy and irrational decisions that led him being stuck in enemy territory where the king wanted to take his life when they recognized him. And so he faked insanity to get out of the king's grasp. I think I might have forgot to mention that in the story, didn't I? I think I forgot to tell you the rest of the story. I apologize about that. Let me go back. Let, let me read the rest of the story to you. Only those of you who knew the story would know what I was talking about, so I apologize. Listen to this when David shows up. He says, The servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while it was in their hands, he acted like a madman. 
making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, look at this man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. <laughs> so sorry about that. I forgot that part. Yeah. So again, Psalm 34 is composed into, because of self-induced decisions. Bad decisions in life, irrational thinking that led him here. But you know what's cool? In that madness, during that time, he's still praying out to God for help. Do you notice in verse 4, I sought the Lord? That's past tense. He's in the cave now. He's writing this. And he goes, I sought the Lord. So while he was going, as much as crazy as things were going around him, he was constantly still in prayer. I don't know how that all works. We're still making bad. Well, I guess I know how it works. You can still make bad decisions and be in prayer. But there's this internal battle going on in his life. But he's never leaving God out of it. God's in the midst of it throughout all the, the whole time. And he recognizes his state. He goes, this poor man cried out. It wasn't, the, it wasn't a heyday for him, as, the, as Boyce rightly said. This was a low point in his life. You know, this is, a, this is where David was. This is so cool, church, because we can learn that from David that he continued to cry out in the midst of chaos. And again, that's not always my default. In the last year and a half, through all the fears and failures and all the things you've been wrestling through with the way the world's been turned upside down, I don't know about you, but my tendency is often to keep working the problem. You know, go find the scientist that backs up my point of view. <laughs> Formulate the logic response to the people that disagree with me. Get some defensive strategies, because that'll convince anybody, and that'll help me out of my fears. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. A person convinced their will is of the opinion, same opinion still. David says, church, take it to me in prayer. Whether you're a victim or it's self-induced, take it to me in prayer. You're a, be a poor man in the presence of God. Be a poor woman in the presence of God. And this is cool too, because some of us are self-condemners. Some of us do enough beating up of ourselves for the, for the world, not even to say a word to us. If anyone could have said, I don't deserve for God to hear my prayers, it would have been David. A Goliath killer to like faking insanity? What a polar opposite in faith and trust. But what does God say? He heard me and delivered me from my fears. He heard me and delivered me from my fears. Even if we fail... God wants to take it. So why is prayer and praise the antidote? I'll finish with this. Why is it the, why does it, why is it the pathway to, to freedom? When you praise and pray in the midst of fear, fears get put into perspective. Fears get put into perspective. Because praise and prayer demonstrate a total dependence on God. Knowing that your situation is in the hands of a loving Lord. 
and not on the situation consuming you. Others' opinions become less important. Even the opinions of ourselves have no value. The circumstances around us become less important. And we don't even need anymore when we're praising him for the outcome to work in our favor because we're thinking about who he is and his goodness to us as a loving father. And this is really, this is really interesting, church, because fear and trust compete for the same place in your heart. Fear and trust compete for the same place in the loyalty of your heart. They're virtually equivalent in what they consist of. Here's what I mean. Both of these things, both attribute power to someone or something that can affect your future. Fear and trust both attribute power to someone or something that can affect the outcome of your future. The only difference is the object of your fear or trust. That's the only difference. And so that's why the Bible tells us to fear the Lord, to look to him. You know what, church? There was a practical example of this occurring last week in our church. You want to talk about how practical this is in terms of application? So I won't mention names, but by Sunday evening, I knew of six individuals in service last week that all had fear, that that all admitted to having fear and worry and anxiety. Six individuals that publicly made a declaration to me in some kind of way. I didn't have a chance to address all six, but I did speak to four of them. Do you know what they said? They said, I walked into church last Sunday full of anxiety, full of worry, fixated on the problems. I was depressed. I was down. I was out. They said, when I left Genesis House last Sunday, fear was eradicated. It was gone. I had no worries in the world. I was ready to take the world by charge and honor God with my life. I want to embrace the vision of Genesis House and our path forward in terms of capturing this community. Fear was eradicated from many of our lives after last week's service. What did we do here last week? What did we do? Did we become workaholics to get rid of the the problem? Did we take medication? Did we eat? Did we self-condemn? Did we go figure out, you know, on the internet who can support our, our theories? We did none of that. How did fear get eradicated? We spent time praising the Lord and singing in song and in prayer. <laughs> and all of us who walked out of here felt changed through prayer and praise. I don't even have to tell you or try to convince you that this works. And it should work because God's the creator of the universe. He's a creator of mankind. He knows what he's doing with people. But we can get like David. We can forget this and go back to the world's strategies for dealing with stuff. The last week was an important uh, sermon for me and situation in the church, not just because of the vision we cast, but because of the testimonies of the people of how that's changed their lives. Now, Fear might have crept in this week a little bit more again, but that's why we're here, (laughs) to once again praise and pray to the Lord. Because fear is never going to go away, but how we deal with it can totally change. 
And he can bring deliverance and peace to us. I do want to have a time of dialogue and we will dedicate a few minutes to that. But before we do that, I'd like to spend time right now practically applying what the Lord's thought is. I'd like us to go a time of, time of prayer together like we did last week, corporately. Church, this is your time to praise God. You can praise him. And this is also a time for us to cast our worries and fears upon them. We can, can confess what they are. I know we have them. Let the Lord bring healing to us right now as we do this together. So why don't we go to a time of prayer? Make it a time of praise and tell them about your fears. Tell them about your fears. Lord, I know there's many things in the congregation's mind and hearts that are present, and they've been probably talking to you quietly. There's fear to bring them out, <laughs> even in, in a public place. And that's just proof, Lord, that you have a lot of work to do in us, and that we are still a work in progress. At the same time, we're deeply loved by you, and you give us your grace and your mercy on a constant basis. We thank you for this time. And uh, yeah, maybe we put these uh, life applications into practice in Christ's name. Amen.